Welcome everybody uh, to the APGRD podcast, Staging the Archive. It's a slightly unusual one this time in that we are all recording remotely for such is the time that we're all in. So we hope you can give us the benefit of, uh, of your patience with the recording quality, but hopefully the, the quality of the knowledge that our speakers will be imparting will be more than enough to make up for that. I am joined today uh, by two speakers. So we have Dr. Chella Ward, who may be familiar to some of you as she completed her DFO here at Oxford, which involved working very closely with the APGRD, uh, including a spell in the role which I'm in now as, as archivist. Um, she's now attended the Outreach Fellow at Worcester College and is currently working on a project which I'm sure she'll explain far better than me, but um, she's looking at spectators and how audiences engage, how audiences respond, uh, particularly when Greek, uh, Greek tragedies, Greek plays are taken in a sort of global context rather than a specifically Western one. Um, if that sounds, uh, if that sounds right, Chella, you can correct me in a moment. Um, we're also very privileged to be joined by Professor Michael Scott, uh, who is Professor of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Warwick. And Michael's also very well known for his publications as well as TV and radio work, so particularly Invisible Cities uh, on BBC Two, which you may have encountered. And he's currently working on a research project which looks at correlation between cultures in antiquity. Um, so following on from a publication on the same topic. So welcome to both of you. Thank you and thanks very much for, um, for having us. Um, yeah, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I think um, <laughs> maybe important to say you, you kind of uh, summed up my work on Greek theatre by saying that it um, relates to Greek theatre as a kind of in a global context. I think I would say that's because I'm interested in Greek theatre properly speaking as a global phenomenon, by which I mean not in um, trying to make Greek theatre seem global, um, but in respecting the fact that Greek theatre was always a hugely expensive thing, travelled a huge amount, dealt with huge numbers of different kinds of, of cultures and societies and civilizations. And I think um, some of what we're going to talk about today um, precisely troubles uh, that idea that there is a, a sort of Western context um, for these plays, which of course um, were never and have never been uh, Western to such an extent that the idea of the West could even really exist outside of a kind of narrow ideological positioning of East versus West. Um, but that's something I suppose we'll come on to when we talk about these objects. Uh, and just to say thank you very much indeed for the welcome as well, Claire. It's a great pleasure to be here and to join you for and uh, you and Chella for this discussion. Um, and I, and Chella's been brilliant in picking up some objects from the collection to kick us off, which I think are also going to be available to listeners as uh, as a blog to be able to have a look at. Um, and I think we're kicking off with with a, a version of Hecuba from from the eighties in Los Angeles. Is that right, Chella? Yeah, that's right. Um, this is a Hecuba that was performed in 1987. And it's a Hecuba that received, I mean, we're looking actually at the programme, we should probably start there. We're looking at, at the programme to this Hecuba. It's a programme that has on its cover this kind of slightly bizarre image. It has what looks like a globe, so it's sort of a round circle with a slightly imprecisely drawn map. We'll come on to what's weird about the map in a minute with the, a kind of um, sickle and hammer symbol um, on, on one side of, of the map, 
um, and the, the flag of the United States across the bottom of it. Um, and I think that's speaking to what the production team uh, and indeed the reviewers who, who, who saw this production uh, are thinking of as a kind of repositioning, a political repositioning, but also a geographical repositioning of this play. In the director's notes, the director asks us to, and I'm quoting here from the program, suppose that the Greeks are Israelis, that the Trojans are Palestinians, that the Thracians are one of the clashing political factions in Lebanon. Suppose that the gods are the superpowers, Europe early in the century, the United States and the Soviet Union now. Now watch and hear the story that Euripides tells, the story of Hecuba. So we're being set up in this production for a particular kind of um, political retelling um, of this story. And I mean, I guess it, it's, it's worth underlining that the director himself was Lebanese American uh, and that you know, as a result, obviously, this kind of retelling and resetting is a very personal one for the director. I mean, the thing that struck me, is, as Chella already marked out about the map um, that's on the front page, is that either this is a very bad map drawer or who, who's trying to offer a vision of the globe or else it's a very, very particular particularized map to, to reinforce the idea of particularly the gods and the superpowers of the world that he's created for his Hecuba. Because what you're looking at, you're seeing recognizably America and Central America over on the left, but on the right, I was struck by the fact that there's the sort of European and African landmass conglomerate. It's almost like the, the world has been sent back several tectonic ages into the past uh, because we've sort of lost the Mediterranean Sea with a little bit of the Middle East and a little bit of Russia at the top. Um, with poor old Britain completely left off the map entirely, it feels. So, I, I mean, I would suggest that you know, the viewers coming in to see this production got a very, very loaded sense of what this production was going to be about in terms of the political messages it wanted to put forward uh, before even the lights went down and the curtain went up. And that's reinforced, as, as Cello has read out, from the inside cover of the production. Uh, but, I mean, initially, I, I guess I wasn't that perturbed by that. I think we're all pretty used to going to watch productions of Greek tragedy that have set themselves in X location. I mean, I remember uh, going with a very good friend of mine who's Serbian to see an, a Sophocles Antigone set in uh, Serbia following on from the conflicts of former Yugoslavia. I, I don't think this perturbs us. What, what really surprised me was when Chela provided the reviews that linked to this production, where back in the 80s, at least in Los Angeles in America, they seem to have been very perturbed by this. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Michael. We're, we're totally used to Greek tragedy being used to speak to whatever the issue of the day is, right? That's kind of one of the things we see all the time with Greek tragedy is we get a load of medias around conversations to do with women's rights. We get um, loads of versions of the Persians around the time of the Iraq war, for instance. I mean, that's something that uh, Greek tragedy can pick up on those issues in interesting ways. But um, yeah, they the one of the reviews, um, begins with the headline, Hecuba moves to the Middle East in updated Euripides. And, and throughout the review, what we get is this sense that the, the reviewer was really shocked to see that this play could speak to a, to a Middle Eastern context. And the review talks about, um, talks about, I mean, that's maybe too neutral a term. The, the reviewer really doesn't like the fact that, as he puts it, the, the characters, so the, the uh, actors who are playing the Trojan women are wearing traditional Arab dress or are singing to Middle Eastern melodies. And that's, um, 
sort of positioned as being really too much of a stretch for this play that we really should have thought of properly as a Greek play and not a play that was full of this kind of Middle Eastern stuff. And that's something that to me is really, I was about to say surprising, but perhaps it's not surprising because there has been, uh, as I'm sure um, listeners are aware, a tradition of wanting Greek tragedy to seem like it was the beginning of, of Western civilization, of a Western theatrical tradition. So it's not surprising in a sense that reviewers didn't like this, this Middle Eastern version, but it does say something interesting in this play, right? It, it, it uh, sheds light on a particular kind of historical oversight, I think, because Hecuba, I mean, I don't know if people know the, the story of the Hecuba, but Hecuba, obviously written by Euripides, but it's, um, uh, it's set uh, in a camp on the coast of Thrace, and Hecuba is Trojan. She's the wife of Priam, who's the king of Troy. And, and Troy, um, as far as we know, Troy has been uh, thought of as being in different places over the long kind of history of thinking about where, archaeologically speaking, Troy might be. Um, but, you know, we usually tend to say uh, Hisalic, which is in modern day Turkey, right? So we're, we're talking about um, a play that is both set and involving uh, a crucial character from, um, ancient Turkey, right, the, the, the kind of uh, coast of, of the ancient Middle East. So the sense that it's surprising to find it there doesn't really sort of make sense in terms of, in terms of what we, where we think that play um, really might sort of belong. I guess, uh, you know, what really surprised me also following on from that is the, the sense that in America in the 80s, uh, there was this clearly in relation to this play, and I, I presume to others at the time, a, a, a dislike of seeing it located to a, a part of the world that, that in reality it was very much associated with and, and, and took place not far from. And I'm trying to relate that into my sense of how America has wanted to conceptualize and own uh, and, and, and sort of break off from that connectivity to the rest of the world, the Greeks as an entity and obviously their cultural creations like Greek tragedy. Um, and it's one of the things that's always surprised me that even when you look at the debates of the founding fathers for the US constitution, at that stage, 18th century, they are absolutely not wanting to be anything like or associated with the ancient Greek, at least political model. You know, if you look in those debates, it's things like, uh, you know what, even if every ancient Athenian citizen had been a Socrates, ancient Greek democracy would still have been just completely mass uh, ruled by an uncouth, uh, unruly kind of mass of people. We don't want that, right? And they deliberately go, we want Republican Roman models. That's what we want. So I guess what I'm, I'm trying to understand is at what point and how between that sort of distancing from wanting anything to do with ancient Greece, at least politically, we've got to a stage by the 1980s whereby suddenly actually Greekness can't be anything that is anything except a Western kind of and, and, and almost American creation. Yeah, and there really is this kind of crucial period, isn't there, between in which this play was, was being written because by the time we get to sort of the early 90s, we've got um, things like Samuel Huntington's Cluster of Civilizations article being written where the premise of that article um, is that there are these two blocks, the East and the West, and they will always be fighting each other. Um, and that's an article that has um, really kind of frightening origins. It's to do with the work of someone, uh, of a historian of the Middle East called Bernard Lewis, um, who wrote um, 
a number of different articles, hugely Islamophobic articles um, about the relationship between Islam and the West, where um, he wanted precisely to situate Islam as the opposite of the West, which became, you know, in the mid 90s, part of American foreign policy too, that, that, that the Middle East and particularly um, because, uh, you know, a number of, it, of its um, nations were, were, were Islamic, or at least majority Islamic, was kind of, uh, was positioned during those kind of crucial years as the opposite culturally to the West, and not just the opposite to it, but uh, sort of violently opposed to it. And that becomes part of a lot of the, um, a, a lot of the rhetoric that surrounds the Iraq war too. So I think I see um, the response to this play sitting in a kind of interesting place um, because reviewers are sort of feigning surprise at seeing Euripides in the Middle East. Precisely, um, as you say, Michael, I think in, in order to distance uh, the idea of Greekness from the Middle East and to claim the idea of Greekness for a kind of um, white American, but also white European foundation myth, um, that would, you know, through, through Huntington's article, um, come to be kind of popularized as uh, Western civilization, right, as a kind of clash of civilizations narrative. So, yeah, this is a play that, that belongs to a particular moment in that conversation, I think. And I guess, sadly, it links into a moment which is, which is still very much continuing, right? I mean, I'm thinking of the work of the Pharos project at the moment that is documenting the still very extensive use of um, ancient Greek exemplar to try and bolster and support uh, very uh, xenophobic, uh, homophobic uh, political views, but equally more widely to still continue to justify this idea of both Western civilization as a con concept in and of itself, but equally as Western civilization, whatever that might be, as the superior uh, kind of a civilization uh, as well. So I, I guess, you know, it would be interesting to see what would happen now with another production of, say, Hecuba or another play that was set again somewhere in the Middle East, kind of post all the most recent political events and turmoil, um, and and see and see whether the reaction is any different. Well, yeah, I think sadly, well, not just sadly, but um, kind of deeply problematically, um, the reaction is not all that different, right? We saw with that production, um, Queens of Syria, not so long ago which was a, a sort of version of the Trojan women um, where, um, you know, that, that had, it had a Syrian chorus, it had a chorus made up of, of uh, refugees and the reactions or the way that that was written about was again with a kind of surprise as if it was surprising to find, um, you know, displaced women um, using the words of, of a Greek uh, playwright. And I think, um, you know, <laughs> As you were saying about about Pharos, that project one one of the um, one of the moments documented by Pharos is the uh, moment in I think 2016 when a, a white supremacist far right group known as it was at the time known as Identity Europa, it's now known as the American Identity Movement, plastered these posters all over American campuses and American college campuses um, with uh, slogans that said things like protect our heritage um, and the the picture on all of those posters was uh, the statue of Apollo Belvedere which is a Roman copy of a Greek statue um, 
And it's a white marble statue, so it plays into all of those mistaken ideas about the fact that the Greeks and the Romans must have been white because all their statues are made of white marble. And of course, we know that that's absolutely untrue. Of course, you know, they were colored at the time, the statues were, were colored with paint. Um, but it almost doesn't matter that that was untrue, right? Because um, whether or not, no, no one, none of those people, no one who, um, you know, volunteers their time with Identity Europa and other horrendous white supremacist organizations has ever um, seriously wanted to investigate um, racial and ethnic diversity in the ancient world, right? That's never been a concern. Whether that was, whether, um, what those statues were, were actually really like has never really worried them. I think um, what has always been happening in that conversation about Western civilization is that the Western civilization narrative has given us the idea that there is something about the West that must be protected from this thing that is called the East. So, you know, that, that's dangerous, not only because it gives us this hugely reductive vision of the ancient world, right, that leads to this kind of interpretation, that it's surprising somehow to find Hecuba in the Middle East, where in fact, in fact um, the Middle East is precisely where she's from. Um, but it's not, a, it's not that that's the problem. It's the huge violence on the other end that is legitimated by this idea that there is an East and the West and that uh, one is a kind of superior culture that needs to be protected from the barbarism of, of, of the other. I guess, yeah, it, it kind of flies in the face of, of what everything we know about the very myths themselves that made up these great tragedies in the first place, isn't it? That they were stories that were meant to be and were constantly being told and retold and presented and represented and adapted and extended. Um, and, and that has, has uh, you know, thankfully has continued in some ways in some places. Um, and I'm struck by how much this seems to me to be an example of you know, this stuff is not for you <laughs> and is not about you and is only for and about us in comparison to the other example that you've pulled from, from the archives, which seems to me, if we zoom right to the other end of, of the geographical kind of a spectrum, we're now in China, setting ourselves in Beijing in China, to be very much an attempt to show how these same tragedies are universal and are meant for everyone and can be for everyone. Um, and this is an example, I think, from just a decade later from the 90s, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is this is a collaborative production between uh, an opera company uh, from Beijing um, and a New York Greek theatre company. And it's produced 1996. And it's the, the work of um, actually a long-standing collaboration between a Chinese theatre company and uh, uh, an American theatre company, both obviously very high profile uh, theatre companies who've done huge amounts of, of work. Um, and it's directed by uh, a Chinese director, Chen, Chen Shizeng. Um, and it seems very much to be, on the surface at least, um, about a kind of cultural meeting. I mean, we, we've just pulled out here uh, the review of this production in a, in a newspaper called Beijing Scenes. And the headline is East-West Fusion Takes Centre Stage, The Black Eye of Euripides Meets Peking Opera. So again, um, you know, that <laughs> it begins again with the assumption that the East and the West are kind of blocks that are irreconcilable, um, which for all the reasons I've just said is, is a hugely problematic uh, kind of framework to lock ourselves into. But as you say, Michael, this is a production that sets itself out to do something different. It sets itself out to produce something um, that uses techniques from what it sees as both these two separate worlds, right? And I think 
something that sticks out to me as, as really interesting from this review um, is the moment where we're told that the reason that they wanted to do this, the reason that this collaboration came about in the first place, um, is that, and I'm just going to quote the review here, um, of the theatrical styles vital today, Asian theatre is the closest to what Greek tragedy was really like. So loads of interesting stuff there, notably how on earth would we know what Greek tragedy was really like, um, but also interesting that this is a production that makes us think that in fact the perfect analogue or the perfect way to explore what Greek theatre might have been like is not uh, in London in the National Theatre or even in you know the theatre in, in Epidavros in Greece but but might be in fact in an opera house in China. And not just an opera house in China but a, but a very particular style of Chinese production with Peking opera style which is exemplified by you know very high-pitched kind of notes and singing and the kind of very stylistic movements uh, of dance, the heavily painted faces, um, a, a style that kind of I think that, that is felt under threat in, in China of being able to survive but one which I think also is pointed out in this review to have its own rich tradition of absorbing other theatrical uh, elements so it's a tradition which is almost designed and, and thrives on kind of living and meeting and blending with kind of other styles from other places that is being set up as the, the most modern equivalent to ancient Greek tragedy, uh, which I think goes back to the point you were making at the beginning about uh, and your particular research interest, which is which is talking about the global nature of tragedy from the beginning rather than it being set in any one particular place. Yeah, exactly. And and I think what, what is interesting here is uh, that the reviewer points out a number of local um, kind of influences on this on this uh, production, particular kinds of storytelling, for instance, um, that originate in, in Chinese tea houses are, are used for the messenger speeches here. So there is a kind of, there's an interest in seeking out um, what a kind of operatic tradition, which is, you know, a hugely uh, musical tradition, a hugely performative tradition, um, could make of, of Greek tragedy um, and, and could make in a way that would um, show us maybe something else something that we wouldn't have understood about Greek tragedy if we had only ever looked at it in uh, a theatre in the UK or a theatre in Greece or a theatre in America, for instance. So I think, you know, what's interesting to me is that this isn't about, I mean, the beginning of the review uh, talks about it, this being, um, you know, the closest to what Greek tragedy was really like. I think certainly in my work, um, I'm not interested in reconstruction in that way, because I think we're always doing a kind of imaginative guessing in all of our work on the ancient world where we're, constructing a narrative based off, you know, often far fewer facts than we'd like to. Um, so I think it's interesting to, to, to think about uh, this as, as an opportunity, an opportunity to see something else in Greek theatre that, that, that perhaps we haven't um, seen. But it is set up as if it were the very first time that um, Chinese theatre and Greek tragedy had ever come together. And that strikes me as a an unusual um, thing to be to be suggesting. Yes, I mean, I I I was struck by before we get on to the point about the um, about where where this 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 tendency of mixing and matching these cultures has come from or when it started. I, I was really struck by the sort of reviewer trying to rather gently and nicely say that it <clears throat> felt a bit of a mishmash in that you were listening to. Uh, a, a Chinese Peking kind of uh, opera style trained Chinese actors 
speaking ancient Greek that they'd had to learn by trying to find equivalated Chinese symbols. You were hearing ancient Greek music being played on Chinese instruments. Um, you were seeing masks that were being used instead of the face paint, uh, kind of uh, particular kinds of masks to allow some of the kind of range of facial expression that uh, is normal to speaking set up. So you can see how they've, they've gone above and beyond uh, to make this a complete uh, and equal sort of integration of these different styles to offer something up. Um, but what struck me also coming out at the end of the review was the way that the director reflecting on this process set up Western theatre as being playwright-centred and Asian theatre as being performance-centred and how he felt ancient Greek tragedy had been a mix of the two. And that's why he had tried to sort of bring these two styles together. And I, before we sort of move on to the, to the point about uh, kind of what, what China is doing with ancient Greek and ancient Greece, um, I just wondered kind of whether we might reflect on that as being whether that playwright versus performance centered is a useful kind of sense of either Western theatre and Asian theatre today if we want to use those terms I mean as he's done as he does um, or indeed the idea that Greek tragedy somehow combined the two. Yeah that is interesting I, I, I think that um, we have wanted to see for a long time not so much now but we have wanted for a long time to see Greek theatre as being playwright centred and also as being kind of star centered, right? We think about there being three actors playing these main roles and then also a chorus. Um, and we, because we come, most of us, you know, at least the two of us from a, from a kind of very uh, British theatrical context where we had in Britain a star system in the theater, right? We, we had um, for a very long time, the idea that um, it was particular actors who uh, played these important roles. And, you know, we talk about that star system um, in theatre history in the 19th century, but really it was something that uh, kind of dominated the British stage for a very long time. I mean, we talk about Shakespeare's companies, but within those companies, there are certain people whose names we know that roles were written especially for. Um, Will Kemp, for instance, who's one of Shakespeare's clowns. That, that's, a, that's a famous name. And the reason it's a famous name is because we know that parts were written specifically for him. So we've got, um, a kind of writing-led theatre, but one that is about actors, that is not about large groups of bodies moving together on a stage, right? It's not about, when we think about choruses um, in European theatre, we tend to think about them in something like a musical, right? Or in an opera, we don't, if you go and see, um, I don't know, Arthur Miller or Harold Pinter or uh, Carol Churchill or any of those playwrights, you, you won't see, huge choruses of people and that's partly uh, a kind of financial conversation right it's partly because it costs a huge amount of money to train um, courses and a huge amount of rehearsal time to train courses so that's partly to do with cuts to theatre budgets and things like that but um, so, I, so I do think sorry I'm going a long way about saying that I do think there is an interesting positioning of the chorus here as crucial to this production and I think that, that probably uh, is happening in a way that it would be very difficult for that to happen in a kind of contemporary British theatre because of the huge cost that they would be involved in, in in training that chorus and the huge space that you would need in order to do that. I don't think that's an East versus West thing, because I've already said I don't believe in an East versus West thing, but I, but I don't think that um, 
purely Asian theatre, whatever the word Asian might mean in this context. Um, I don't think that only Asian theatre can do that, but I do think this clearly was a production that took seriously the huge performative value of having lots and lots of bodies on stage to move and, and, and to make sound. I think, I think that's absolutely right. And I, uh, that, I just like this idea that, whereas we saw a very upfront denial in the Hecuba example, that this could be a play for anyone else except the West. I think here is a, um, despite the fact that it's a, a seeming example of universality and kind of integration of cultures, there's a subtle underplay here going on also that potentially actually kind of the home to really understand Greek tragedy is not kind of in its uh, original geographical home or any version of its original geographical home, but actually far away in the East. And it um, speaks to some of the stuff that I've been very surprised by in in very recent years of how China has moved to position itself as very much akin with uh, Greece and particularly the heritage and cultural achievements of ancient Greece. Um, I mean, I've been studying this a little bit, uh, partly because I was in China for a couple of uh, times through 2018 and, and uh, working with different institutes and institutions that study the classics. Now, um, the earliest uh, institute for the history of ancient civilizations that works on, on the Greeks and Romans was set up in China in the 1980s uh, in uh, Changchun in Northeastern Normal University and is still the kind of foremost postgraduate unit for, for study in China uh, of both Greeks and Romans but also Egypt and Assyria etc but uh, I mean across different um, Chinese universities there seem to be well over now a hundred different Chinese academics that are working on particularly Greece and Rome um, and but what surprised me even more than that is the way that an appreciation for an interest in a love for uh, particularly ancient Greece has now exploded far beyond the the, the ivory towers of, of, of Chinese universities and has become much more of a popular and public phenomenon. So in the last couple of years, there have been blockbuster exhibitions in museums in Shanghai and in Beijing of ancient Greek objects. Um, and this has now sort of levered up into obviously increasing the number of direct flights between China and, and Greece, a number of university concordats and agreements to work together. And most recently, we've seen the Antikythera mechanism on display in the Forbidden City in Beijing. I mean, you could not get a more high-profile place to have ancient Greece, ancient Greek artifacts exhibited, and China has sent some of its, um, interestingly, Han-era artifacts over to be uh, shown and displayed on the Acropolis and the New Acropolis Museum. Um, and we've seen this kind of increasing love affair or want to equate the great, particularly philosophical and cultural achievements of the Han era with those of ancient Greece. Um, and I think this is really been, because when you actually try and put the two in geographical timeline together, or so chronological timeline together, that obviously doesn't work at all. In fact, actually, the chronological timeline puts the Roman Empire and the Han Empire at exactly the same time. Uh, and in 2015, in fact, I, some of you may have seen this movie when it came out in the cinemas, but there was a movie called Dragon Blade that came out in 2015 um, that was Jackie Chan, John Cusack, Adrian Brody and it was one of the first kind of link-ups between uh, the sort of Beijing Film Academy that was sponsoring movies and, the, and Hollywood making a movie about how Han soldiers had 
banded together with great Roman legionaries to save the ancient Silk Roads from being taken over by nasty individual who wanted to own it all for himself. Uh, this was a massive blockbuster hit in China. It completely flopped uh, in, in America. But um, actually, since then, it seems clear that what China does not want is a comparison and connection with ancient Rome and connotations of empire and emperors uh, at all. What it wants is a connection with the cultural and philosophical achievements of particularly ancient Greece. And I kind of, I wonder, we're seeing that particularly in relation to philosophy and science, but I wonder if we're going to see that also in more again in relation to uh, tragedy and to drama more generally. Yeah. Um... Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all, uh, you know, what you're saying about the kind of huge popularity of of the ancient Greeks in China. Just anecdotally, um, a couple of years ago, I wrote a small children's book about ancient Greece and it's coming out in September. And uh, the only international rights it has already sold are its Chinese international rights. And it sold them sort of almost, you know, before it went to print. So there is huge. And I mean, that's a book written for really tiny little children. So um that there's clearly huge appetite for, for ancient Greece. And, and that really is not a surprising thing, right? I think I, we don't need to kind of imagine that China uh, just sort of woke up one day and decided that it wanted to uh, suddenly have this interest in ancient Greece, or indeed um, that, that that comes about as some kind of process of westernization, because, um, you know, there, there have been conversations around um, kind of, comparative work on, for instance, Confucianism and ancient Greek philosophy. There are, we have all sorts of grammar um, handbooks uh, from the kind of early Qing dynasty that are um, modeled on books for teaching Latin grammar. So I don't think we need to imagine that this is a totally new thing. I think um, its pace is picking up and hopefully that will teach us something really important, which is that um, you know, the, the, the British, the Americans, other Europeans, other kind of, um, you know, large groups of white people who had for a long time wanted to claim that they alone had a special relationship with ancient Greece are, you know, increasingly um, going to find that their relationship with ancient Greece was precisely as constructed as anyone else's, right? There, there's no reason why, you know, a writer sitting in their study um, somewhere in North London should be more likely to draw on the plays of Aeschylus than, uh, you know, someone someone uh, sitting in their study in Beijing, for instance. I don't, I don't see a kind of intrinsic separation there. So um, it's exciting that we are about to come to learn that, um, but I don't think it's a new thing. Uh, I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, what uh, is obviously driving the kind of uh, supersizing, if we might call it that, of this relationship right now is uh, the modern politics of China sort of coming forward with its new one belt, one road and the part that Greece plays in that. You know, the port of Piraeus is now principally Chinese owned and, and Greece is China's entry point into Europe. Um, and I think it's fascinating that China has so very cleverly um, and Greece has equally responded, kind of developed this this new link between ancient cultures, which which then leads on to modern uh, cultural collaboration and financial collaboration and geopolitical collaboration, because it is using 
what those in kind of uh, the Hecuba reviewer-esque have been claiming as the quintessential foundation of Western civilization, the ancient Greeks, as the tool to hive off uh, part of Europe, Greece, to make it look more eastwards uh, and be more a friend to China moving forward than it is um, to, to Europe and, and, and to the West. Um, and this was seen, I think, most recently, and Xi Jinping actually kind of made a visit to Greece and the two of them, the two uh, premiers were kind of uh, bonding together very obviously. And they've even set something up, I found out the other day, called the Great Civilizations Forum which is a new uh, global collaboration between all modern countries who are home to great ancient civilizations. So this is Italy, Greece, Egypt, uh, Iraq, Iran, uh, China, uh, Peru, uh, and I think Bolivia is in there as well, um, kind of as kind of as a group of people at the moment, it's sort of soft power through cultural connection, through being home to these ancient civilizations, but its stated future purpose is very much to act as a new financial kind of power player within the world. So I think we are only just at the beginning of this supersizing process actually of seeing uh, connections made between modern countries through their ancient cultures um, and, and using that to, to then actually influence modern world affairs going forward. I did want to sort of pose one more question to you because I mean, Chella and I were both thinking about the slight weirdness of going back into the 90s and as this first play that you choose to kind of in this new collaboration between the New York Greek Drama Theatre and the Chinese National Beijing Opera, why did they pick the Bacchae right? of all the plays? Because I mean, I don't know about you, but it is, it's not, I mean, no tragedy is cheery, but this is not by any means the cheeriest production to put on on stage. And it strikes me actually as a very weird choice. Yeah, and, and it's hard to know whether that's a choice that's motivated by the kind of small reputation that the Bacchae has of being a play that is about somebody who might be Asian, right? I mean, Dionysus, when he arrives at the beginning of that play, he's very keen to tell us in, in like the very first words he says as he opens his mouth, um, and he's disguised, um, I'm sure some listeners will remember, he's disguised as his own priest at this point. But he, the very first words that come out of his mouth are that he's just been to other places. He's just come from, and he lists all these other places. So he lists Lydia, he talks about visiting the Persians, uh, he talks about um, Arabia. Um, and then at the end of his list, he also says that he's been in Asia, right? And what those various geographical terms might have meant at that point in the fifth century, I think is maybe something we'll have to leave for another day. But I, but I think what's interesting about this play is that it's often carried with it the idea um, or people have imputed to it the idea that this is a play about um, what happens when a kind of Asian uh, religion in the form literally of a person of the god Dionysus comes into a sort of Greek setting and obviously you know obviously people can't see because it's a podcast but when you were talking about uh, great uh, civilizations, Mike, I was sort of raising my eyebrows, um, almost touching the sky, because obviously um, civilization is an idea that does a huge amount of damage, because the idea that certain people are civilized and certain people are not is a very ancient idea, but it's one that allows the huge mistreatment of huge numbers of people, um, and is connected to the enslavement of people and all these various different kinds of horrendous things. But, you know, that 
to me is what um, the idea that this is an Asian god, uh, or this is a god who's from somewhere that is not Greek, coming into a kind of civilized Greek world, is what makes me kind of wonder whether there's something about this choice that isn't just the kind of optimistic, or oh, we can all share Greek tragedy collaborative effort that, that um, this newspaper article is kind of positioning this play in the 90s to be, because you know the, the Bacchae is about the huge amount of destruction that is caused, the death of Pentheus, in fact, or not just the death of Pentheus, but his beheading and dismemberment um, caused by um, his mother. So what happens is Dionysus uh, bewitches his mother um, so that she sees her own son Pentheus as a lion. She then sort of tears off his head um, and uh, proudly goes back to the city saying that she's beheaded this lion. But that comes about as a kind of punishment of Dionysus. So what we've got here is, is a structure of a play that is about a god who comes from somewhere else, yeah? Somewhere that's kind of explicitly set up as not the sort of civilized Greek world in which we, we are in the play, um, and brings with him huge amounts of violence, huge amounts of destruction, also um, sort of different ways of troubling the binaries of, or the, the false binaries anyway, of gender, um, because we're told throughout the play that Dionysus makes the women behave in a way that they wouldn't normally behave or they shouldn't behave. So it's an interesting play to choose um, for this collaboration because um, it's precisely not a play that is optimistic about what happens when different cultures connect, right? It's a play that um, has underneath it, I think, the idea that there might be something about this, this Asiatic god that might be dangerous to um, you know to, to to the Greeks that that he interacts with. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think I think for me, seeing this play or imagining being in the audience, seeing this play in the nineties in Beijing, kind of it's, the, it's again, it's all those different layers, isn't it? There is the idea that there is a universality of poetry and of cultural production that a play is something which speaks to humanity and to the range of emotions that all humanity has respective of irrespective of background of which this is supposed to be a recognized you know masterpiece of Euripides to be able to, to speak to all of those emotions that it is a play that can go anywhere but as you say it is a play about what happens when someone comes from a very foreign culture and starts to mess everything up within the culture that, that he, the God is inserting himself into. And equally, I think there's another layer there for me, which is about what religion does to a society and what it messes up uh, or kind of the powerful nature of, of, of religion within the society. And I think that particularly coming in and thinking about the kind of often difficult place of religion within modern Chinese culture, kind of particularly given the director apparently used specific gestures uh, from Miao you know, rituals kind of within different parts of China that are incorporated into the performance. I think if you were a Chinese spectator of this performance, you wouldn't but be able to see something of the, um, the difficult kind of relationship between the Chinese state and religion kind of within this play as well. So I, I think this is actually a fascinating example of kind of very, very uh, multi-layered textual kind of um, references where we're thinking about kind of how this would have gone down as an example of um, interaction between different cultures um, and reception within its own particular culture as well. I think it also shows us why conversations around 
the problematic nature of the division between East and West are not over, right? Um, because even in this play uh, that seems very much to be about collaboration, to be about um, the sort of sharing of uh, the idea of an ancient heritage, even then we're still seeing classics doing the work of marking out a cult one culture as uh, powerful and superior and civilized and uh, another culture as uh, violent, as uh, barbaric, as causing a problem for that civilized culture. So I think, you know, and this is something that we see ancient literature doing throughout its kind of long history also of being attached to um, the violent colonialism of the British Empire too. I mean, you look at the different things that um, Greek literature, uh, Latin literature was being used to do uh, in, uh, in colonized India, for instance, which was sort of about uh, seeming on the surface to give cultural capital. But within that cultural capital was the idea that what you had to learn was the supremacy of the British, right? You, what you were going to learn by being given ancient literature was um, a kind of white supremacist vision of an idealized Europe, right? That, that um, was a kind of a colonizer figure. Um, so, so I think that's why uh, having a conversation that, that, um, that picks up, you know, how in both of these instances, the reviewers are registering a surprise to find a connection with East and West. Um, when really, as we've said, <laughs> for a whole number of different reasons, it's not at all surprising um, to find classics in these various different kinds of, of places. The reasons why it's surprising though are really important because the reasons why it's surprising is because we have allowed uh, ancient literature and the idea of the classical world to be weaponized um, as a tool that worked to confirm the supremacy of certain kinds of people who were positioned as closer to that ancient civilization, right? So I'm thinking of um, the way in which, for instance, when uh, the British Museum uh, was built, it was built with that huge kind of Athenian colonnade thing um, with the aim of, of sort of sort of setting up Britain as the obvious inheritor to these riches, when in fact, those things uh, were stolen and were then used uh, to position um, the supremacy of the, precisely those countries that had stolen them. So I think asking the why question here is is as important as as looking at what happened and what and what was said about what happened. Well, that seems a, um, a a fitting place to to end for now. Although I'm sure we could continue the conversation much longer. Um, very, very fascinating. I'm sure the listeners will agree, um, particularly those explorations into those, the politics of, of national identity, uh, self-identified privileged positions with the classics, which is, which is something that definitely always bears further investigation. Um, I don't know about anyone else, but I've been queuing up the Ancient Civilizations Forum on Google to look at after this, because that's something I had no idea of and is very, very interesting, um, something to observe the future of. So thank you so much to both Chella and Michael for joining us. As mentioned, there'll be a accompanying blog post so you can take a look at the items which our guest speakers have been um, discussing. And uh, do, do get in touch with us if you have any further questions relating to the podcast.